What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguera. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny. I'll tell you why. Gonna... <laughs> that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look, I'm going to tell you Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I am William Nagero. And today we have a really interesting case. A guy named Harvey Glattman. And he's also known as the Lonely Hearts Killer. Lonely Hearts. If you're my age or younger, you might not even know what that means. I didn't. Um, that's a personal ad. Lonely Hearts. Um, when they used to put well yeah he was also known as the he had a second name which was the Glamour Girl Slayer um, and it'll become very evident why he was known as the Glamour Girl Slayer as well as the Lonely Hearts Killer I see so this took place a long time ago uh, which is why these terms seem a little bit outdated but we'll get into it I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram Facebook and definitely Patreon. That is patreon.com slash death row diaries. By the way, Bill, any updates on the Danny Masterson situation? How's he doing? Well, I mean, he's here, but he's not in my particular section. He's in a level three yard. You know, I don't know. A lot of guys here watch the 70s show. So, you know, sometimes guys in prison, they have a pretty twisted sense of what reality is. So they're probably going to refer to him as Hyde. And they're probably going to ask him about Donna and ask him about all the stuff that happened on that show like it was real life. And on the other hand, there's a few guys who are going to probably think that he's rich and try and pressure him for all his money. Yeah, but there's probably guys that will worship him too, like you said, because... uh you know he's a he's a fairly famous actor right. yeah but i mean look most of the guys here are trying to look for an angle so they'll look at him as you know possibly someone that will give them money for protection or you know it could be a situation where i mean, another guy believes that because he's a writer or whatever that he could possibly get this guy to you know, hook him up with a Hollywood big weight or something or heavyweight. So you never know what the guys are going to hear in prison going to do with a guy like this. But you know, <laughs> you never know what happens in prison, and it's just it's going to be one of those things that we're going to read about at some point because something's going to happen, whether it's good or bad. I don't know, but I mean, he's in a different yard than I'm on, but I'm sure that he is not having the best time of his life. No. What are your odds he gets a face tattoo at some point, or at least a neck tattoo to kind of, you know, prove himself? 
Yeah, well, you know, that's a funny thing you asked that because, you know, when I first came or was arrested and came to prison and jail, usually only people in prison had tattoos. You may have an armed forces guy, a naval guy with an anchor in his arm or whatever, but tattoos are not that big of a deal. Well, when I got here to Corcoran, man, I never knew so many guys thought it was cool to have tattoos on their face. Just about every guy here has got tattoos on him. Some of these guys' faces are completely covered in tattoos, which blows my freaking mind. I mean, what do you do when you get out of prison? Hi, my name is Joe Blow. I'd like to be a fucking waiter at your restaurant. I mean, what the hell? But then again, in this particular society now, a lot of people have face tattoos, and I don't, and, and, and arm tattoos. Look at... Post Malone and some of these other clowns like Jelly Roll or Jelly Bean, whatever they call that country western dude that sings, man, his whole face is covered in tattoos. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely move to like L.A. or New York and get a job as a bartender or something, but it's definitely going to limit your your career uh, paths. I mean, there's only so many rappers and... I also think, for the most part, rapper is just a privilege that comes along with being a drug dealer. But uh, yeah, if you, it is weird, and uh, it's funny that you think it's weird because you were surrounded by murderers, and you still think that these guys are weird for doing this. Yeah, no, it, it is. I mean, I see some clown with a bunch of tattoos on his face. I'm not thinking, huh? I want to move next door to this guy, or hey, I want this guy to marry my daughter or some shit. No, I'm thinking the same thing. You freaking guy's a criminal. It's just, I, I, don't, I don't understand it, why people do it. And I get a kick out of rappers anyways. They're the funniest guys in the world to me. You know, they, get, they go to prison or, or, or jail or to a country club because they never go to real prison. <laughs> the ones that tell you they went to prison, they went to protective custody and they're there for their own safety. So they never experience being on a level four mainline because they're going to get cracked pressure or something's going to happen to him. I mean, look at a guy like Suge Knight, okay? Supposedly a bad guy and everything. <laughs> He's in protective custody, man. He's not going to walk around mainland with a bunch of level four guys. They'll kill his ass. Yeah. So I always get a kick out of rappers who say that they're, you know, they have street credibility because they went to prison. <laughs> I, yeah. I find that to be hilarious. Those guys those guys are only dangerous to a jelly donut or to a hamburger, man. Those, those guys aren't killers. Yeah. Yeah, it's just weird to me. I mean, it's sometimes these guys they'll kind of give you a look like what are you like what are you looking at? It's like I'm looking at your face cuz it, it looks freakish and you look very strange. I mean, I would assume that you um thought people were going to look at your face when you got all these weird tattoos on your face. I thought that was probably the point. But um well, let me just say this. Some of the scariest killers I've met, I'm talking about guys who are predators, who prey on other criminals. So they're the worst of the worst, the most scariest guys in the world. They look nothing like the guys that you think they should look like. They don't have tattoos in their face. They're usually soft-spoken. They're extremely intelligent. But man, as soon as that mask comes off and you get into their skin, your days are limited. And none of them rap, none of them have tattoos on their face, and none of them uh, look at you funny like they're going to do something. These rappers who 
you say have looks and stuff, they look at you a certain way. In prison, they're walking around with their tail between their legs because they know what's next. If they look at someone in prison like that and give somebody the appearance that they're going to do something to them, there's no, there's no talking, there's no looking. It's immediately from zero to 100 miles an hour, and they get caught. It's that simple. I believe it. So along those lines, let's talk about Harvey Glattman. And by the way, do follow us on Patreon. I know I said that already. That's patreon.com slash Diaries. Harvey Murray Glattman, not the scariest name, born in New York City, 1927, little Jewish boy. Um, and he gets pretty weird right away. He doesn't waste any time, huh? Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, funny to say so, because, you know, I like to always talk about this and how serial killers are born rather than made. Of course, we have all these experts talking about that they were made because of abuse. Well, this is a guy that is spot on when it comes to, you know, sexual deviancy and that something's obviously wrong with this kid very early on. He's wired differently. He was born this way. So at age four, his mother discovers that little Harvey ties or likes to tie string around his penis and he yanks on it because it gives him sexual gratification who's instinctively doing this at the age of four you know and, and it, get, it gets worse from there it progresses quickly by the age of 12 he's placing a rope around his neck and he's pulling it tight to choke himself as he masturbates. So, I mean, this kid is showing extremely early signs of sadomasochist mas- tendencies, uh, just perversion, uh, sexual deviancy in the most profound and twisted way you can think of. This guy's exhibiting it, and he starts at the age of four. At least that's when his mom caught him. He probably started earlier than that, but I mean, Matt, did, have you ever tried to sting around <laughs> around your penis and try choking yourself while you're masturbating? No, it, it doesn't sound very pleasurable, especially the string thing. That just seems like it would uh, chafe. Hey, Matt. Yeah, so I guess his mom did take him to the doctor and kind of try and get him checked out see what's going on but uh i'm just gonna go out on a limb and say when you're autoerotically choking yourself at the age of 12 i don't think things are really going to get better yeah i agree this this kid's wired this way from birth and you know the doctor thought eh, he's gonna outgrow it that's usually the the comeback or something like that he did not grow it. He actually progressed rather quickly. So he's choking himself while he masturbates. And his hobbies are burglary, purse snatching. And by the way, when he burglarizes houses, he's stealing underwear. And now he's assaulting women. At age 12, 
he is following women home, forcing them into their rooms at gunpoint, where he then will tie them up. He loves ropes, by the way, and he assaults them. He's 12. I mean, at that age, I was playing with G.I. Joe with the Kung Fu grip. This guy is running around sexually assaulting women at gunpoint, and he's a little guy. He's not some big six foot, you know, big old guy like some of the guys who see. This guy is a little Jewish guy, and it's incredible because he goes a number of years without getting caught. At 17, while he's still in high school, he actually is arrested because one of the women recognizes him and identifies him from a series of mug shots. So that is very telling as it is. If his picture is in mug shots, that means police already have a pretty good tip at what this guy is doing. And so he continues when he graduates, he is put in a, a former a reformatory. At that time, it wasn't juvenile hall, it was a reformatory for boys. Um, when he gets out, he continues to rob and sexually assault women. And he's usually arrested and then he's let out like most of the time what happened in those days. Um, so in one of these prison sentences or short terms in reformatories, the psychologist basically said, look, he's psychopathic, personality disorder. He's schizophrenic with sexual perverted impulses for a basis for his criminality. That's, this is their words. By 1957, Harvey is now, he has a pretty good idea what he wants to do. Remember I talked about when guys go to prison, reformatories have long drives for a long period of time. They have a chance to really look into themselves. They self-reflect, not in a good way. You know, we self-reflect about rehabilitation, but these guys don't. They reflect, they examine themselves in the sphere of fantasy. And he realizes very early on he wants to do something to women horribly bad to get his juices flowing. What does he do? Well, Harvey moves to Los Angeles and picks up photography. And he begins to work as a television repairman to put or support himself, but his crimes really begin to escalate quickly. Okay, so we talked about him being called the glamour girl kilt slayer. How this happened was he used to pose as a photographer for pulp magazines. So in those days, in the 50s, they had all these magazines where women would pose in bikini and stuff like that. And he would tell them that he was the model agency and he would take the women, the up and coming actresses or models to a place to photograph, you know, take pictures of them. His first victim was a 19-year-old model by the name of Judy Ann Dole. And, you know, he found her, called her, said he was a photographer for these magazines, and that he would pay her $50 if she would pose for these pulp, pulp novels for him. Of course, in the 1950s, $50 is a lot of money. Um, so... 
he picks her up. No one seems to think this guy's weird. He doesn't look like a bad guy. He doesn't have tattoos on his face. He picks her up. He takes her to his apartment. And right away, Harvey turns into a monster. Pulls out a gun. Holds her at gunpoint. Repeatedly rapes her. And then he drives her to a secluded location in the desert near Los Angeles where he strangles her to death while having sex and he continues these escapades for the duration of his time as a free man. That's the first one. And it's not like, okay, this guy got a conscience, he stopped. He immediately picked up where he left off. This guy is, by all accounts, when we think of serial killers, the guys that are sexually motivated, the ones that really are considered serial killers, this is the perfect example of one right here. Right. So at this point, he's only like around 30, early 30s, if if that. Um, but he's still a young guy. So, you know, it makes sense. He's trying to get into photography he's um he's a, a I'm, I'm assuming he's a charming guy but he's a, he's a nice looking guy and uh i guess none of this even seems that weird to the models you know i mean he's going through the motions of i'm sure he's got a camera and equipment and and you know he's what would you think you respond to an advertisement you know yeah well look this is the area, the era of social media where anybody can Google what does a photographer's equipment look like. The guy shows up with a camera uh, or looks like the guy answering an ad for models because back then, young ladies who would like to model or were looking for modeling agencies usually put ads in the newspaper. It says something like, you know, young, fresh face, looking for modeling jobs, please call. And they put a phone number or just the opposite. Uh, a modeling agency says something like looking for girls 18 to 25 for modeling jobs, good pay. And people would answer these, these ads. Well, you don't know who's putting these ads out there. So Harvey, obviously he knows what he knows the gig. He knows how to do it. And here's his next victim. It's Shirley Ann Bridgeford. She's 24 years old. And this is how he got the name, the lonely heart killer he answered an ad to the lonely hearts magazine because it's like an ad it's a, it's a i know the people today why don't those means but most people back then would put these little ads in newspapers or in comic books or whatever and you would have the lonely hearts ad looking for a date looking for something all right so he answers the ad using the name george williams and he goes and picks up Bradford on this uh, supposed date. And he takes her supposedly to a dance club, but instead he takes her out to the desert where he just killed another woman. He ties her up, he takes photographs, at, uh, photographs of her, and he kills her. But he's raping her the whole time. After she's dead, he leaves the, the body unburied and if the 
the audience wants to see what this guy's done, you can look online and actually find the photographs of, and I'm sure Matt, you should definitely put this in our social uh, media accounts to show people what this guy was doing, but all the photographs that he actually took during these murder sprees are actually online. You can see them. He tied them up. He had a thing about ropes and tying women up and raping them when they're tied up. It's the whole fascination with ropes that he started doing when he's four years old. But these photographs can be found. They're, and they're, they're disturbing to say the least, but it gives you an idea on the mind behind the actions um, of this particular guy. So, so are these photographs... Like I said, this guy... Because I'm, I'm looking at these right now. Are these photographs that uh, they were voluntarily taking before, you know, he, he turned the tables? Or are, are these just him documenting uh, what, he's, what he's doing? Well, both. Some of the, the magazines that he was supposedly a photographer for he would tell them that they, they were photographs to be taken, tied up and this stuff. But normally he couldn't control his impulses. He'd get there, open the door to his apartment, close the door, pull the gun and right there, he'd start raping them, tying them up. He liked to take fit photographs of them. That was his, his thing. That was the, if you want to call it his signature. He had to photograph these girls tied up. It got him off. Remember we talked about the difference between a, 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 a MO as opposed to a signature. His signature was about tying them up. It was the way he got off. And um, yeah, it, it was, it's, it's a motor's operandi that he, that he has and he, he can't stop doing what he does. Um, he did speak to a number of different magazines and authors. Um, one of them was Last Meals. The Final Suppers of Serial Killers and Murderers by Dylan Frost. Um, so this guy, after he was in prison, this guy is like the model for the, the, the modern serial killer. He likes to take photographs of his work. He uses a career like photography to get the women to where he wants them. It's his MO. He picks them up as a photographer. That's how he gets the victim. And then when he kills them, he photographs them and does all this stuff You know, as part of his signature. Uh, but this guy is, in fact, the prototype for what you would see later on with these killers in the 70s and 80s that started doing similar things, using photography as a way to get into the, um, to the women's lives. Um, and, and look, this guy really didn't have, uh, like you would say, an aggressive bone in his body. He wasn't what you would think. Like, this guy doesn't look like a serial killer. He's, you know, clean shaven, clean haircut, well-spoken. He, he wears glasses. Not the typical guy you would think, this guy's a monster. But once he was behind closed doors, once he pulled that gun, everything changed. Right. So... So at this point, how, how do you think he's progressed at this point um, in terms of these models, these, I shouldn't say it that way, but these women who he's murdered, 
Do you think they're among his first victims, or are they just the first ones that they've identified, or that they will ever identify, probably? Yeah, that's a good question, and I've gone back and forth on that particular issue. Uh, his first victim, it shows that he ties her up, he's, he, he kills her, he has a gun. Everything seems to be going as planned, as he had done it before. He is, you know, 27 years old, not young, but he's also not old enough to be very experienced, but yet you see that he has this pretty figured out. So in most cases, I would tell you, you know what, Matt, this guy's obviously done this before. There's no hesitation. He knows exactly how he's going to do it, and he does exactly that. With this guy, although he was progressing and he had been assaulting women for years, I'm a little hesitant to say that he had killed before. And, and I'll tell you why. So let me call, let me call right back. Okay. So, you know, normally, um, Matt, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. So normally I do say that there's no hesitation. Of course, this is, he's an experienced killer. And I'm a little hesitant on this one. Only because, because this guy does, he actually scares me a little bit because he hits all the markers that I've been talking about for years when it comes to a serial killer who is born. Uh, this one is obviously exactly what I'm talking about. Very early age, he knows what he is. He starts moving towards that. At 12, he's assaulting women. At 17, he's doing it. And then he goes in this reformatory and then comes out and he's ready to start doing what he does. It's, he's moving to Los Angeles and he has all these, um, these markers. He did grow up in Colorado. He did not, he was born in New York, but he was brought up in Colorado. So the reason I'm hesitant is because he's a little bit different. I've said this before, every serial killer is different. They have some similarities but each one thinks different and acts different. Now, normally this guy is, he's hard to figure out because he's so direct. And it might be that 1957, 58 is the first years that he struck as a killer. And as I said, I'm hesitant, but I'm not all the way convinced that he's not because later on, well, actually, 55 years later, we learn that actually he may have started earlier. And then that right there throws a monkey wrench into what I previously thought when I first started reading about this case. So here's what I discovered. He did live in Colorado. And in Boulder, there was a, a, a woman discovered in 1954. And this is way before he moved to, actually three years before he moved to Los Angeles. And he was living in Boulder and there was a woman discovered named Boulder Jane Doe. And her identity remained a mystery for 55 years. In October of 2009, local authorities were, able, were, were notified by a doctor at Middle Typing Technology in State College, Pennsylvania, that her lab 
um, had made a a match, and the doctor's name is Terry Milton, and it was the DNA profile uh, of that woman who was an unidentified murder victim might be the um, the sister of one of the people that believe he killed. Uh, so it was um, identified positively that it was 18-year-old Phoenix, Arizona woman named Dorothy Gay Howard. And that particular case, Gutman is a suspect of that. So back to your question, do I believe that these were his first murders? My first reaction would have been, and, and it, look, there's a lot of gut feeling here, that it, yes, it was. But once I discovered this other victim that possibly could be his in 1954, I had to rethink it because the first thing that struck me was this is the 1950s. There's no cameras. There's no cell phones. No one's looking. There's a lot of unpopulated area in both the Mojave Desert, the high desert in California, as well as in Colorado in wooded areas. So to answer your question positively, no. It was not Harvey's first kills in Los Angeles. He had done it before. I think that he probably got spooked in Colorado, maybe because there isn't the Tinseltown look of the 50s, of the 1950s in Hollywood. Every woman's looking for a modeling career. I think that Colorado didn't fit that particular stereotypical Hollywood scene that he was looking for. And his fantasy took him to Los Angeles to be that Hollywood guy, to be the killer he actually wanted to be. Yeah, because he's been, he's been, uh, um, I guess, kidnapping women at gunpoint since he was 12 years old. He's already very advanced um, to get away with that. I mean, how do you even conceal a gun from your parents? I have no idea, but... You know, he's he's almost like prodigious at this. He's got all the factors working for him. So if he was doing that at 12, I mean, easily by 16, 17, he could have been murdering and getting away with it. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. So... You know, it's possible this guy has many more murders, but he's extremely interesting to me. Um, you know, his count, body count is three or four, but we know the serial killers are often convicted of three or four murders. And if they confess to those three or four murders, the investigation ends. They're going to get a death penalty. They're going to get life in prison. No one then cares. That's kind of exactly what happens to this guy and how he gets arrested. He does pick up a fourth victim. Well, that we believe is a fourth victim. Her name was uh, Lorraine Vigil, and she had registered with a modeling agency. Uh, Harvey contacted her for a photo shoot in July of 1958, and when she was in his car, the things got really bad because they were supposed to be going to Hollywood, and he was going in the wrong direction, and she figured that out. He made an excuse. He pulled over his car so he got a flat tire. Once he's out of the car, he pulls a gun at him. He pulls his gun on her, and she panics. She knows this guy is going to try to harm her. 
obviously he has a gun in his hand. He's trying to force her to go with him, and she makes a desperate attempt, which I, I applaud this woman because she would have ended up dead. She grabbed the muzzle of the gun, and there was a struggle. The gun went off, and it kind of passed through her skirt. It skinned her. It didn't really do a lot of damage. But she locked onto that gun, and she refused to let it go. And they were struggling on the side of the road when, actually, a police car passed by, saw it, pulled over, arrested Gutman, or Glutman, and he was taken to the police station where then immediately he confesses to three murders and he leads the police department to this little box that he has kind of like a toolbox but it was a photographer's box where it contained the photographs of his other victims in los angeles and the case closed because he was then um there was a short, of course, sentence. He's found guilty of two counts, not three or four, two counts of first-degree murder, and he is sentenced that he actually asked for the death penalty. And, um, well, the, the truth of the matter is that um, he was executed in the gas chamber at St. Quentin State Prison on September 18, 1959. So it was very, this took place within three years of the time he arrives in Los Angeles, starts killing, he's caught, sent to death row, he's executed right away. Um, so back to, do I believe he had more murders? Well, by this, you would say no. But remember, he confessed to three of them immediately, all in Los Angeles. So police didn't have any more reason to look at him about anything else. And this is the 50s. Not a lot of people knew about serial killers. Not a lot of people understood their MOs, signatures, none of that stuff. This was way before that. So that he copped to three of them, they thought, good enough. Give them the death penalty, we execute them, end of story. Well, we also know now that that isn't the way things work. He probably confessed because he didn't want them to know about the other ones. The other ones were very personal to him. Remember, I talk about this. The serial killers often cooperate with law enforcement. They give them what they want. Yeah, there's a body here, there's a body there. But certain bodies, they keep to themselves. Why do they do that? My interviews and interrogations with serial killers, unbeknownst to them, led me to the treasure trove that they tell me we don't want to give up the personal ones. Some of them, they're all special to us, but some more than others. And those they keep to themselves. They won't talk about it, even if it's going to save their lives. Harvey probably had a few that he kept to himself because he didn't want to disclose them to authorities or share them with authorities. I, yeah, I get that. That does make sense. But why a guy at this age who this is all he cares about is killing women and raping them? You know, he gets caught pulling a gun. I don't know. Why not, in his mind do a couple years and get out and go back to killing why why the abrupt turnaround and confession he, he wouldn't have gotten convicted of those well, other crimes maybe yeah well you know sometimes I, and I, again every serial killer is different but i wanted to just examine btk 
BTK had gotten away with everything. He started contacting police. He had named himself. He had done everything except give the face of BTK or put a face to the name. And he did that. He went to prison. He is now doing interviews from prison. He's the center of attention. As I said before, Harvey Glutman is the prototype for the modern serial killer. He does all these things that the ones that are right around now do, which is getting attention, etc. He got exactly that. He immediately confessed to what he had done. Sure, he could have just said, well, you know, this woman said something to me, I got pissed off, pulled a gun on her. No one knew who he was. No one was looking for him for these other murders. He confessed to him. He sent them to the toolbox. There's a very good possibility he wanted to get caught. That way it gave him the limelight. It put him at center stage. It made him the glamour girl slayer. Right, but he doesn't want enough attention for all the murders, just just the ones that he he chooses. Exactly, and that is the ultimate control, isn't it? Right. They're putting him in prison, but he tells them the reasons why they should be in prison. He tells them who he killed. Those are the photographs I want you to have. He doesn't give anything else up. He doesn't mention anything else. So, yeah, I, I think that he did kill that Boulder Jane. I believe uh, Boulder, Colorado Jane Doe. Um, I also believe that he had more murders than that. It's very difficult to believe that he got caught after only three, and he's been doing this since the age of 12. But what in would terms he have... of assaulting women. Right. What, what about, wouldn't he have had more, more pictures, though, of more victims? Um, or were these, were these just his most brazen? Um, so so maybe, maybe the ones with the photos, he may have known that I have a, a much better chance of getting caught from, you know, being traced through these advertisements and all this stuff. Well, I, I think more has to do with compartmentalization. The serial killers compartmentalize very well. So the murders that happened in Colorado, he kept in a certain stash, in a certain place. Uh, when he got to Hollywood, he evolved a little bit, started taking pictures of, of the models, because after he killed in Colorado, he believed that, God, I want to relive this. I need the photographs. I didn't take any photographs there. Now he's doing that. He keeps them in the toolbox. He compartmentalized Los Angeles from Colorado. That's happened in the past as well with serial killers. So he's Look at Randy Kraft. The sco- go ahead. Hey, man. All right, go ahead. Yeah, so I forgot what I was talking about. What was I talking about? Uh, Randy Kraft. Yeah, well, see, Randy Kraft, he put on a docket or a sheet of paper basically a scorecard of his kills. Some of them were... Some of the scorecards had above 50 murders, but he had other scorecards with other names or descriptions or places. So a serial killer can change certain things about what he does, and all we're doing is guessing. Look, my best educated guess is this is what he did, but each one of them is different. 
anybody that tells you they have all the answers about serial killers is freaking lying to you. I can't tell you exactly why he did this. I'm sitting here more than 60 years, 70 years after this guy's around, and I'm second-guessing what he's doing based on the experience that I have talking to more serial killers than anybody on Earth. And that's my best take. Am I 100% right? I don't know. But it's my best educated guess based on interviewing more than 45 serial killers in a 40-year span that I spent on death row. Right. So this guy was executed in San Quentin in the gas chamber, 1959. This is a bit of a stretch, but you definitely overlapped with some people, some convicts who served with him. Did you ever hear anything personal about him? Or is that too far removed? Well, actually, it's very strange you should ask that. No, it's very strange you should ask that because there are killers on death row while I was there that were actually on death row prior to the death penalty being abolished in 1973. So a lot of guys actually knew some of these guys from the 50s because they were on death row in the 50s. And when it was abolished, they actually were released at some point. Well, one of them who was not on death row at the time is a serial killer now. And he happens to have a big crush on the glamour girl slayer and this particular guy whose name is joseph naso people confuse him as the initials killer he's not he is the portrait killer and joseph naso his mo is very similar uh, to harvey glutman photographer lured women into apartments different places the desert killed them dumped them in different places he worked the bay area he worked las vegas and some other places where he killed a lot of women and his mo was very similar to him and he happened because he and i spoke for many years he's talked about the glamour girl slayer or the lonely hearts killer as a guy that he admired a lot and sometimes we see this happen with serial killers they actually study other serial killers because once they realize what turns them on or what who they are they discover this they want to kind of look at other people that have done this before them and they study them and look at their cases they look at how they got caught and it kind of makes them almost live like a fantasy. It's like a little child that runs around saying, I'm Batman. He puts on a cape, he jumps off the building, and he runs around the house. Serial killers do something very similar. When they discover who they are, sometimes they look up other serial killers and kind of not pretend that they are them, but in the same lineage as them, the same tribe. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I found extremely interesting about serial killers. Yeah, it's like a kid having a poster of Michael Jordan or uh, LeBron James on their bedroom wall or something. Exactly. I mean, it's no difference. I mean, it sounds a little little childish. Well, yeah, it does. But it's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, 
interesting, really interesting uh, discussion about this guy. I had never heard of him, but uh, I haven't heard of most of these guys. But yeah, this is uh, this is freaky, and the fact that he was only 31 by the time he was tried, convicted, and executed—it's crazy. Yeah, he he started off quick. I mean, look at Jeffrey Dahmer; started very early as well. So we have had cases like this with a different MO. One was homosexual, one is not. But uh, yeah, starting out very early. Different serial killers do different things. None of them are alike, ladies and gentlemen. But as I call them insects, they are very interesting nonetheless. Yep. Well, that's all for this time. We'll be back next week with another story, another study. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Noguera. Please check out my YouTube page, William A. Noguera. Subscribe to me. It's free. Check out some of the stuff there. We have some of the episodes of Death Row Diaries up there. We'd love to have you come on. So, till next time, be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life could depend on it. We'll see you next time.